Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sa. My name is Aaron Bastani and I'm filling in for Michael Walker as we talk about the biggest stories that matter to you. On tonight's show, I have the honor of being joined by Ash Sarka. Ash, how are we? We're doing good, Aaron. I'm just so happy to be here with you because we don't often get to do the show together. So the other, other AA are in attendance and in effect. This isn't the roadside service AA. This is the, this is the A team. I'm Murdoch, your face. That's probably a, a literary TV reference lost on our audience. That's fine. I'm showing my age. In any case, we have some really, really big stories today. First of which concerns Liz Truss. We are just one week away from finding out which of these two complete lunatics, frankly, when it comes to economic policy, becomes the next prime minister. Liz Truss is all but guaranteed to be the next prime minister. And that's really bad news. Why? Because her plans to deal with the cost of living crisis looks set to completely crash the economy. Truss is reportedly planning to cut VAT, currently at 20% by a quarter, in order to help British households with their rocketing energy bills. According to the IFS, the average household bill is set to jump by 80% from October after Ofgem raised the energy price cap. That cap currently stands at just under £2,000 per year, but it'll be about 3500 from October. So what would a 5% VAT cut mean? It would save the average household £1,300 per year while costing the Treasury £3.2 billion a month. Since most basics, including groceries and medication, don't have VAT charged on them anyway, this kind of cut will benefit wealthier households more than poorer ones. Unless you're spending significant amounts on non-essential goods and services, you won't feel it at all. And the more you spend on non-essentials, the more you'll benefit from the savings. So it's a regressive proposal, and it's designed to attract the wealthy Tories who make up Liz Truss's base. But the Times has reported that top economists are also worried that Truss's plans will make almost everyone worse off overall. Paul Johnson is head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. He told the Times this. You clearly can't do all of this without completely crashing the public finances. The simplistic mantra that you can cut taxes and the economy grows more, that you cut taxes when you have a big deficit and high inflation and you don't do it with any other part of the plan, is quite worrying. And the Times goes on. Johnson told the Times that a proposal to cut VAT was inappropriate and risked exacerbating inflation, not taming it. Johnson also said the Bank of England would raise interest rates more quickly if trust pressed ahead with the cuts. If Paul Johnson is right, which he probably is, then any VAT cut is likely to be raised by an increase in the cost of borrowing. That means that mortgage rates and thus rents could well go up. So unless you own your own house outright, you're going to feel your income squeezed on housing costs. And again, that's going to hit the poorest hardest. They won't benefit from the VAT cuts while probably spending more on housing. And of course, those energy bills remain incredibly high. Torsten Bell is head of the Resolution Foundation, an organization which aims to improve the living standard of people on low and middle incomes. He told the Times, There are times when VAT cuts can be an important tool, i.e. when you've got a more textbook recession and you want a fiscal stimulus to support demand. Obviously, the Bank of England is telling us we're in the opposite situation of excess demand right now. The economics of it don't work. It's expensive, and you'll end up having to do loads more because it doesn't target either of the key things. One, low middle incomes. Two, the size of energy bills. 
In addition, Truss has generally ruled out direct support to help with energy bills. So, of course, that can change given the situation. As one of her allies said, Liz is not in favour of universal handouts, but she does seem to be in favour of universal poverty. Ash, a VAT cut was favoured by Labour in the 2008 recession, but this is a really different kind of crisis, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is a totally different kind of crisis because as Torsten Bell said, cutting VAT is something that you do when what you want to do is drive up demand. When it comes to some of those non-essential items, you know, meals out, that kind of thing, uh, purchases which you wouldn't consider 100% necessary to somebody's survival, though I think it does form the foundation of a pretty decent standard of living. The reason why Liz Truss is flailing around looking for tax cuts is because she's ideologically opposed and has boxed herself in a corner when it comes to dealing with the actual core of the problem, which is domestic and also commercial energy bills, which are being driven up to sky high prices because of the wholesale cost of gas. So what you want to do in that situation is the thing that there's actually a consensus around is find a way to keep the energy price cap where it is or indeed drop it back down to where it was at the beginning of the year. You could do that one of two ways. One is you can borrow and you give the money straight over to retail energy companies in the form of what are effectively state handouts. So you take them into public hands, you nationalize them. It's the state who then eats the loss of the difference between the retail cost of gas and the wholesale price of gas. And then when they return to profitability, the state gets those profits. Or you sort of do what Liz Truss is doing, which is, well, I really hope if I encourage people to get more hot pasties at Gred, this is going to magically give them the spending power, which would otherwise be impacted by having your bills go from a grand last January to over five grand next April. Next story. Nationalising the energy companies is not something that's been proposed by either Labour or the Tories. But a new poll suggests that maybe they should seriously consider it. YouGov asked over 2,000 British adults whether they supported or opposed bringing the energy companies back into public ownership. Labour and Lib Dem voters overwhelmingly support the idea, and just about half of Tory voters want nationalisation too. 47% would support such a proposal, with only 28% against. And when you look at those who voted Tory in 2019, the figure goes up. 53% of them would be in favour of nationalising the energy companies. Now look, the question here is pretty badly framed. What do you mean by energy company, the retailers or the extractors? That distinction really matters when it comes to the impact that nationalisation would have on the cost of energy, sure. But it also doesn't matter that much here because what the poll really shows is a strong public appetite for radical political action to address the cost of living crisis. And that's across all voters. It's a consensus. If you're listening, Keir Starmer, what this poll is telling you is that if you want to attract Tory voters, be more like Jeremy Corbyn. YouGov have been tracking voter opinions on renationalizing energy since 2019. You'll remember that Labour's manifesto for the election that year included the pledge to renationalize all utilities. In August 2019, 50% of Tories either tended to support it or strongly supported it. And that figure has remained relatively stable ever since. So today's result isn't even a surprise. The cost of living crisis might be intensifying a Tory desire for nationalisation, but it's been an incredibly popular idea for years, although the media roundly mocked those Labour proposals in 2019. 
Angela Rayner appeared on Question Time just weeks before the election. The topic was climate change and meat consumption. Then this happened. Angela, as the party of big states, you're talking about your first 100 days today. Um, what would you say in direct response to Aidan, he's put his hand back up, I will come back to you, about stopping people from eating meat? Talking about the actual question here. We have to encourage people to make good choices for our climate and our environment, first of all, at an individual level. And actually, my young kids are much more aware of that than what my generation were. And we have to get real because climate emergency is a real problem. Climate change is a problem, despite what Nigel thinks. But these Would you nationalise sausages? <laughs> no. I still find that so shocking to watch. Ash... Do you think the media will allow us to have a more grown-up debate around public ownership come the next general election, or will things be as bad as last time? The media will allow you to have a more grown-up and thoughtful conversation around public ownership in as much as there is not a politician who can actually deliver it, right? That's the rule of establishment media, Aaron, which is you can complain about the state that society is in as long as there's not a chance of a government getting into power who can meaningfully, radically and proportionately do something about it. So that's why you can have just three years ago, the tenor of discussion around nationalization being so sneering only now for many of the same journalists who are amongst some of the most well-paid journalists this country has to offer saying, hey, you know this nationalization thing? It might just do the trick. And it's not just in the area of, you know, would you nationalize sausages? Do you remember when the idea of having free broadband for all was derided as broadband communism or when an ambitious rewilding environmental policy was being derided by journalists who didn't understand that you can plant more than one tree at once because you don't have Jeremy Corbyn going around the country doing it personally. The journalists in this country are stupid when they want to be and they're perceptive when they want to be. Right now, they're choosing to be perceptive because there's not really a huge chance of the interests of capital being negatively affected. There's not really much of a chance of their contacts at the top of government being that much affected, whether it is the Tories in the Tory party or the Tories who happen to surround and advise Keir Starmer. And so that's why they can make a choice to go, oh, have you considered this? Because there isn't a chance of the status quo being at all disrupted. There is one last thing that I'd like to add to this, which is about the polling that you showed, which demonstrated that actually there's strong support for nationalization of public utilities amongst Tory voters. I think one of the things that people forget is that the electorate's ideological disposition and the ideological disposition of a party member or a politician can be very different things, by which I mean that your average voter will tend to have different sets of ideas, some of which might seem to contradict or conflict with one another, and they sit quite happily within the same person because that's what it means to be part of the electorate. And I think that you you take a totemic slogan, like take back control, which was, of course, the slogan for the Vote Leave campaign in 2016. And that meant lots of things to lots of people in terms of the precise policy area. But what it summed up was a rebuke to a political disposition, which said that the state can't do anything on the issues that you care about. 
Now, for lots of people who supported Brexit, that only meant immigration. But for many of those people, and indeed a section of Labour voters who voted Leave, it meant this sense of governmental abandonment over the things which dictate and shape the quality of your life. So every time you said, hang on, why is this so shit? The government would hold their hands up and go, oh, sorry, love, can't do anything about it. It's the EU. Now, we've left the EU and those things haven't gotten better. All right. The only thing that's really happened is that the tenor of debate around immigration and asylum in particular has gotten much nastier and the policy much, much crueler. But sewage is still being pumped into our rivers and seas. Leaks from water companies mean that we're all being given hose pipe bans or being told, hey, get used to drink toilet water, while private water companies, their CEOs and their shareholders get outrageous bonuses and dividends year upon year. The energy crisis that we're in the middle of right now is a market failure. So the control that was promised to people in 2016 hasn't been delivered. And that's because those utilities, which should be viewed as resources, which are stewarded and controlled by the public and in the public's interest, are instead in private hands, which means that ultimately you don't have any control over it whatsoever. Yeah, there's a strange dissonance in all of this where you hear the cliche from the sort of Westminster pundits. Well, you know, they might say they like particular things people publicly owned in polls, but really they don't trust the state. The default line, which has been the favourite of the Conservative base my entire life is, for anything, call in the army. They love the state. They love the idea of an overwhelming, warm state solving problems. We've got a few more polls to show you on this topic, more or less. 115,000 Royal Mail postal workers began industrial action on Friday. They're set to walk out again on Wednesday, as well as on two days in September. They're striking for pay rises that reflect the current cost of living. Salvation has conducted a poll in the lead up to the first day of strikes that was on Friday. And they asked a sample of people whether they did or didn't support postal workers. 63% of those asked considered strike action justified. 63%. It's almost as though virtually everyone knows these bosses are shafting their workers while enjoying lucrative profits. Basically, they're taking the money out of their pockets, yours too, by the way, as consumers, to hand to shareholders and to themselves with high bonuses. Servation also asked the public what they thought about nationalizing Royal Mail. Again, 63% of those polled were in favor of returning the Royal Mail to state ownership, with only 18% who thought it was better off in the private sector. So again, public strongly supports renationalizing Royal Mail, and yet no political party will go near it as a policy offer. Servation also carried out a poll for campaign organization Enough is Enough. Their aim is to tackle the cost of living crisis by demanding five things. According to the Servation polling, 76% support the first demand for a pay rise to match inflation. 84% support the second demand of slashing energy bills. 83% support ending food poverty, though you have to wonder about the 17% who want that to continue. As for decent homes for all, 78% of those polled wanted that demand met, and 72% wanted to see the rich pay more tax. Now, you might think those are silly questions. Who doesn't want to end food poverty or provide decent homes for all? That's fair to an extent. But then why isn't this supposed consensus even remotely reflected in Westminster politics? 72% of people want to increase taxes on the rich. That's something Liz Truss has been arguing against for months. Meanwhile, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer 
don't want to touch the issue with a barge pole. But this polls well with Tories. Surprising. If you want to win those red wall swing voters, again, maybe be a bit more like Jeremy Corbyn. Radio call-in shows often make for car crash moments, particularly as you never know what to expect. Producers are supposed to weed out callers who are abusive, racist, or bigoted, but they can still sometimes slip through. Here's Sangeeta Maiska presenting on LBC. I just want to explain to you my situation. I come from a family of 10 kids, Mm. and my mother worked 12-hour nights at the power station in the canteen. My dad died when we were younger. I'm sorry. Never had free school meals. Um, I firmly believe that it's not the government's job to feed kids. I believe it's down to the parents. I don't believe all this, what you're saying, let's all sit together and have a meal and all that kind of stuff. I don't believe any of that. And the reason why I'm saying that is because you're on UK radio. Mm -hmm. How are the kids doing in Africa? Do they get free school meals? Well, for some children, it depends where you are in Africa, actually. I was born in Africa, so I can tell you a little bit about it. I know you were, yeah. I know you. Exactly, you were. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it depends where you you are in Africa. The Um, likes of you and Marcus Rashford come on UK TV and radio telling mm -hmm. us all what the government should do and your own country don't provide any, not even a national health service. So do us a favour and shut up. Okay, hang on, Anna. Listen, if you want to have a conversation, that's totally fine. But please don't be rude to me. Oh, can we not get her back? I think she's, oh, she's hung up. That's a real shame, actually, because I would have liked to talk to you, Anna, in a bit more depth. I would say a couple of things. This is my country. Um, yes, I was born abroad. Uh, yes, I'm of Indian heritage. But uh, I grew up here and I have been educated here. Uh, in state schools. I am very passionate about the future of this country. I have always paid my taxes um, because I've always been paid PAYE. And I think it's absolutely right for me to use my platform here on national radio to advocate for things that I think are for the social good. And, you know, clearly, Anna, you do listen to me because you've heard me refer to the fact that I was born in East Africa. Um, And we came here um, uh, I have to say, it wasn't something that my parents chose to do. They felt forced to do that. And we're very grateful that we came here. But equally, I would say I have made a, a contribution to this country, as have uh, my brother and sister. And actually, ev- frankly, every immigrant in my family, certainly my immediate circle, family and friends. And I would say to suggest that I am not allowed to have an opinion on um, issues of deprivation or issues of leveling up um, society or advocate for people that perhaps aren't as well off as I am. And I'm very grateful to have a job. Um, I think is wrong and I think it's short-sighted. One awful call. Sangeeta Maisk was really composed in response, not that she should have to be. What jumps out to me is the claim from the caller that she was one of 10 kids raised by a single mum working 12-hour days, didn't get free school meals. Something which, by the way, isn't a recent innovation from Labour, Laws requiring all local authorities to provide nutritious meals for school kids were first passed in 1944, literally during the Second World War. In 1946, free milk for all children was introduced. It was in the 1980s that Margaret Thatcher's government peeled a lot of this back, with Labour trying to return things back to the pre-Thatcher settlement in the early 2000s. In short, free school meals are not that new. Also, in terms of food subsidies and healthcare, these things exist in many, many countries, not just Britain. Ash, I really want to know your thoughts on this story. 
the reaction from Sangeeta Maisker really interests me as well as the question, kind of hinging on I'm a model minority, I pay my taxes. Where do you sit on that? Power to Sangeeta Maisker for remaining calm and collected and polite, because let me tell you, I would have been breaching every Ofcom rule there is if somebody spoke to me like that. You would hear the music and the little sign that goes up being held by a cartoon dog saying technical difficulties will be right back. So look, power to her for remaining calm. I think that this shows the trap that people of color are in when they're being hit with racism, which is being packaged in a story of working class identity and deprivation. Because then what do you do? Do you say, actually, hang on, I don't think that you are as good an authority as you're making yourself out to be on what it is people experiencing deprivation need, which is actually, I think, a fair enough point if you're saying that states don't have responsibility to make sure kids are being fed. What next? States don't have a responsibility to make sure kids aren't being beaten. Where do you stop in terms of saying that the state doesn't have a responsibility to ensure child well-being? There's a reason why we've got child protection services. There's a reason why there are statutory obligations for people who come into contact with children like nursery workers and teachers and doctors. So where, where do you want that to end? So either you say, actually, you're talking a load of bollocks, which very few call-in radio presenters can get away with. You've got somebody like James O'Brien who's made a name for himself doing that and it also doesn't escape my notice that he's able to do that as a privately educated white man. Or you try and play this game of like, yeah, I'm listening and I'm taking your concerns seriously, which works up to the point that someone hits you with the big old racism stick. Now, I can understand why Sangeeta Maiska essentially played the card of I'm the good immigrant. I'm the good immigrant. I've come here. I've paid taxes. I'm the good immigrant. I've come here. I've contributed and I've worked really hard. I'm the good immigrant. And I'm not going to give you a sob story. I'm actually going to say how good my family have it. And we're incredibly grateful. And that is itself a product of racism. It's not an antidote to racism. It's not a refutation of racism. It's a product of racism and the kinds of narratives that people of color, and in particular people of color who find themselves in more elite in class term spaces. And I think that there's limited value of that. Like I actually think that telling that woman to go fuck herself is completely legitimate. And what's more, maybe is what's needed. You can say, look, we can have a debate till the cows come home about what level of state support you think is necessary. That's fine. But if you tell me to shut up purely because of the color of my skin, and you can tell that it's about the color of the skin, because they also mentioned Marcus Rashford, who was, of course, born in this country, then get fuck off. And you know what? Let Ofcom find me. But you know what, Aaron, that's why I don't host a radio shows, because I would do things like that. I think you'd be good on LBC. There's a few things for me as well. The, the immediate default to say, and look, this isn't a criticism of Sangeeta Maiska because I think you have to think on your feet. She may not even necessarily, that's not necessarily off the shelf the first thing she wants to say in response, but she was shocked, I imagine. I mean, I certainly was watching that, so God knows what it was like for her. But it's an interesting response, and we hear it a lot, and so I think it is worth sort of prizing apart a little bit politically. I would say to her, look, well, Kerala, one of the poorest parts of India, 
as socialized healthcare. So, so the idea that you have to be a wealthy white country in order to provide, you know, wide levels of public healthcare for people is just simply not true. The United States has food stamps. I, I think there's this weird part of the sort of the Tory. Well, she's not Tory. She's from the far right. You know, there's a BNP votes by mm. the sounds of it. But I mean, you know, there's clearly that there is historically crossover, and there is this day. Of course, there is. Be stupid not to think that. There is clearly uh, this obsession with the idea that Britain is somehow persecuted, exploited, you know, and it's it's clearly a projection. It's inverting the reality of the historic situation. And what's interesting for me is Sangeeta Maisker is Indian heritage, born in Tanzania. Tanzania was a British colony till 1961. So I don't know her personal situation, but her parents, if they lived there, would have been British nationals. And this is a problem for, for I think, people like this caller, is that, look, the country, which it wasn't a country, by the way, till 1945, ostensibly, it was an empire. And these people were subjects of an empire. And you were telling them that they were part of this and that this was the mother country. And then at some point, really, 40s, 50s, 60s, people start going, oh, actually, maybe not. We don't want you all coming here. So why is somebody of Indian heritage in East Africa in the first place? It's not happenstance. They didn't go for the weather or to grow nice coffee beans. It's because, you know, the, the economic whims of the British Empire relocated labor and capital like nobody's business. I actually think that this is the stuff that needs to be taught in schools. And there's a wonderful phrase from Kojo Karam. Uh, he says, it's commonly said that Britain had an empire. It would be more true to say that an empire had Britain. Mm. Britain as a political entity, as a nation, was shaped by empire. The act of union between Scotland and England is one about two powers with colonial ambitions. And so who we are without that empire is still something which is being fiercely litigated. And I think this is something which needs to be taught in schools because then it starts opening up, I think, really important social and cultural critiques as well as historical political ones. Because then once you start seeing the history of Britain as something which is being shaped not in Westminster, but out there in the imperial hinterland coming back to us, well, then your ideas around who really belongs here and who doesn't, those things start being challenged. So, Aaron, I think that is something which should be taught in schools. But what should have happened on that radio show is whether it's Tanzania, Kerala or London, you can get your ass beat, Anna. I've been reading this. Uh, it, this is not normally Tiski's our content, but I'll finish with this. I've been reading this book about Alexander the Great, Ash, and we talked about him last week. It was interesting, actually. And, and what, what I didn't know was actually that uh, for ancient Greeks, the idea of being a Hellene, of being a Greek, was just somebody who basically adopted the conventions and spoke the language. And you think, wow, this is 2,400 years ago, and yet it's a more advanced notion of identity, and there wasn't really an idea of race. That's the point. More advanced notion than what we're getting from Anna and Witness. Anyway, very well put, Ash. Next story. Laura Koonsberg stepped down as the BBC's political editor earlier this year after eight years in the job. But don't worry, she's not disappearing from our TV screens just yet, because from September, she'll be hosting the BBC's new flagship Sunday politics show, Sunday with Laura Coons, but very imaginative. Here's a teaser. Morning. Come and have a seat. Now, of course, I'm not going to go easy on you. There are some really okay, big questions we've got to try and get answers to this morning. But I'll be fair, and we, we just want to hear what you've got to say. So, shall we get on with it? We're rolling. Here we go. Join me to hear from the biggest names inside and outside politics. Accompanying that announcement, Koonsberg also did a rare interview with the Sunday Times. 
and a few quotes from it certainly got me thinking. This one is about the fact that Kunzberg doesn't like to talk about her private life and why. Her friends attribute her reticence to a combination of Rethian values, Kunzberg embodying the BBC principle of impartiality, and a fear of trending on Twitter for something she didn't quite say. I think we've missed the boat on that one. She's very wary of the circus around her, says one. Laura takes the rule that the journalist should never become the story incredibly seriously. And then there's her total commitment to BBC impartiality. I have no clue how she votes. The claims of Kunzberg's impartiality will come as rather surprising news to some. After all, this is someone who was labelled as the most divisive woman on TV by The Telegraph in 2017. Now, you can think that's unfair, sexist, and should be ignored because you don't like the newspaper which published it. But the point is that many, many people don't view Laura Koonsberg as especially impartial. That's not just an opinion. Because in January 2017, the BBC Trust ruled that a report in November 2015 by Koonsberg broke the broadcast impartiality and accuracy guidelines. The item in question featured an interview with Jeremy Corbyn on the BBC News at 6. It gave the incorrect impression that the Labour leader disagreed with police use of firearms in incidents such as that month's terrorist attacks in Paris. The report featured Corbyn's answer to a more general question, which was not broadcast. Basically, they cut and paste an answer to a different question. Really unforgivable stuff. The BBC Trust said this misrepresentation was, quote, compounded when Koonsberg went on to state that Corbyn's message, quote, couldn't be more different from that of May, who was about to publish anti-terrorism proposals. How convenient. Nevertheless, the BBC Trust found no evidence that there had been any intention, intentions mislead. And their ruling was that the footage, quote, had been compiled in good faith. Another memorable moment came during the 2019 election. Then Koonsberg, alongside Robert Peston and other senior journalists, tweeted this. So Matt Hancock was dispatched to Leeds General, sorry, not just Leeds Hospital, to try and sort out mess, hearing Labour activists scramble to go and protest, and it turned nasty when they arrived, and one of them punched Hancock's advisor. No alleged there. Yes, a Labour activist had punched a Conservative Party advisor outside a hospital in Leeds, according to Koonsberg, except there was not a grain of evidence for this. It turns out the incident never happened. Almost immediately, footage was released showing this was untrue. Koonsberg later apologised, kind of, and retracted her tweet. Happy to apologise for earlier confusion about the punch. That wasn't a punch outside Leeds General. Two sources suggest it had happened, but clear from video... That was wrong. You might not be surprised to hear that the following year, the BBC's Executive Complaints Unit stated it found no evidence of political bias, nor that Laura Koonsberg had failed to check the story before publication. In her apology, Koonsberg noted that two sources had told her the story was true and she hence decided to publish it. Two sources probably from the same side with the same motivations. What a joke. Now, these are just some of the worst examples of perceived bias. There are numerous others. We don't have all the time to cover them. You know, we would have to do a whole Tisky Sour series. But as much as Koonsberg's style of political journalism can be grating, it seems to be something lost on herself, as she told the Times. The Dallas and Dynasty level drama in the last few years has meant that we've all spent a lot of time listening to what seemed like screaming and shouting in Westminster. Just by virtue of bandwidth, that's crowded up some issues that are actually more relevant in everyday people's, everybody's daily lives. Now, maybe you disagree, but I think that's the precise genre of journalism that Koonsberg personifies for years. With the BBC political editor seemingly more interested in Westminster gossip and triviality than the debates, grievances, and challenges which actually matter to people in this country. Ash, 
Will you be eagerly watching Laura Koonsberg's new Sunday show? I prefer not to speak. If I speak, I am in very big trouble. I mean, genuinely, right? When Laura Koonsberg is criticized by people who are on the left, it is framed almost inevitably as abuse, harassment, and threat. Now, I, of course, totally condemn anyone hurling abuse, threats, or harassing journalists. I think that's totally wrong. But there's a way in which valid criticism has been bundled up with all of those things, I think, in a very cynical way in order to delegitimize the people who are making the critiques and also to delegitimize the critiques themselves. Something that you will always hear is this person's a great journalist. They're totally impartial. I've got no idea how they vote. You hear that about Laura Koonsberg. You hear that about Andrew Neal. You hear that about Robert Peston. Now, of course, I don't have a 100% clear idea of how they vote or if they vote. It's a secret ballot. That is the nature of a democracy. But the idea that you cannot detect political and social sympathies from a journalist's output is so insulting that it doesn't deserve to be printed uncritically in any newspaper of note. So as you've shown, Aaron, there is a clear difference in Laura Koonsberg's coverage in terms of how she was presenting Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour left and the sympathetic ear that she was given to the Tory party during that time. Now, it doesn't mean she was never critical of Tory party politicians, but the threshold for being critical was so much higher. Another massive difference in how the practice of journalism was different according to the political affiliation of what was being covered is which sources are considered to be unimpeachable and therefore you're able to repeat what they tell you verbatim and which sources aren't. If something was coming from the Jeremy Corbyn Labour team, it was very often something which was editorialized in a way to say, hey, you can't really trust this source. Indeed, if there was something coming out which was detrimental to the Conservative Party, it would be very often editorialized by Laura Koonsberg in a way which was minimizing. And I'll give you an example. When there were stories coming out about Tory party Islamophobia, this was happening simultaneously to a period in time when Labour anti-Semitism stories were almost on a daily basis leading the Today program. Laura Koonsberg editorialized in a tweet saying, this is on a different political scale. Now, why is it on a different political scale? Because in terms of the numbers of complaints, it's clearly not. If you're talking about the proportion of members who self-identify as having Islamophobic views, it's way higher amongst the Tory party. So what's different here on the political scale other than you, for some reason, have a bias, you are partial in favor of either one political party or against a particular religious minority group. I mean, pick one. So I think that there are all sorts of ways in which her journalistic practice is shot through by partiality and bias. And it's insulting to all of us for the lobby to maintain this, I think, absurd charade of, oh, well, no one can actually tell what she really thinks. No, you can really tell what she thinks. You can tell who she thinks of as being a legitimate political player and who she thinks shouldn't be in politics at all. It is obvious. Well said. More of that 
in a second. I want to return on this issue of impartiality and whether BBC journalists can cover the news as they see fit. And more of that Sunday Times piece here. Many journalists consider the BBC's impartiality limiting, with Marr saying he was getting his voice back by leaving Andrew Marr, uh, Laura Koonsberg's uh, predecessor on The Sunday Show. But Koonsberg sees it differently. People say, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. You're terribly restricted, she says. For me, that's totally upside down because the whole point of the BBC is that you're not following the line. All you're doing is trying to find the truth. I've never been told what to say or what not to say, maybe more importantly. I've never been told what to say or what not to say. Hmm. Now, I believe it for what it's worth. I believe that nobody has told Laura Koonsberg explicitly what to say or not say as BBC political editor. There's no massive conspiracy orchestrated from on high. But here's the thing. There doesn't need to be, and that doesn't need to happen for journalists to fail in doing their job. Here's Noam Chomsky explaining precisely that point to Andrew Marr. I'm sure you're speaking for the majority of journalists who are trained, have it driven into their heads that this is a crusading profession, adversarial, we stand up against power, a very self-serving view. Uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, I hate to make a value judgment, but the better journalists, and in fact the ones who are often regarded as the best journalists, have quite a different picture, and I think a very realistic one. How, how, can, you, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. Noam Chomsky, that's such a great quote. Ash, do you think figures like Koonsberg or just elite journalists in general even engage with that question of self-censorship? No, they absolutely don't. I mean, I can give you an example from fairly recently. I was in Edinburgh and I was on Ian Dale's all talk show kind of thing. And I was asking him, look, did you cover the Ford report when it came out? And the findings of this report were pretty damning in terms of saying that, yes, Labour does have a problem with a hierarchy of racism. And he said, no, I didn't. Um, and first he said that he didn't because it was the Tory party mega meltdown of Boris's resignation. It wasn't. It was actually after that. They said, oh, no, it wasn't because it was the heat wave. Now, that would never have been an excuse to not cover, say, the Labour Party EHRC report. In fact, many much more minor events of the Labour Party were religiously and ferociously covered by the likes of Ian Dale or indeed many other lobby journalists as well, except the Ford report wasn't. And so rather than thinking about why that is, of how the story of the day, the dominant political narrative is shaped by the collective behavior of an incredibly restricted and homogenous group of journalists, they fall back on this old canard of, well, no one tells us what, what to write. Of course, they wouldn't have to. I think I saw someone on Twitter say, nobody buys a dog only to bark themselves. Very well put. I mean, look, we, we started Navarro Media precisely because the arguments that we make, the points we discuss, the stories we try and cover, weren't being reflected in legacy media. That's what we did. And that gap is there for a reason. It's because media reflects and represents the interests of wealthy people. And like say, Ash, if you're an ambitious young person and you're one of these political analysts, political geeks, which all these journalists claim to be in Westminster, I, I find that a very strange thing you know, being interested in voting systems, but not actually helping people and ending food poverty. But maybe I'm just eccentric. If you're that kind of person and you're interested in these things and you're ambitious and you want to get a job, you need to get a job, you need to feed yourself, and then you like the status and the money and the profile, 
you have to have identical neoliberal views. It's really not, it's not a $64 million question. You are not going to have a great, well-paying job, high status, knowing the right people, well-connected, if you start saying, yeah, you know what, I think we should have universal basic services. Let's have free electric buses, you know? Let's uh, end the housing crisis. Why don't we just have uh, stagnant house prices for 25 years like in Japan? That sort of thing's out. Let's have a pay ratio in this country of 10 to 1. Works for the British Army. Why can't it work for the private sector? If you have those opinions, you're not going to get anywhere in the media. You're not going to get anywhere in politics. It, it seems quite obvious to me, but, but there we go. Ash, anything else that you'd like to say on Laura Kuhn's book before we go this evening? Um, yeah, I would. And it's also about the question of active Tory participation within the BBC. Now, as you may recall, Jess Brammer left her job at uh, Huffington Post and she started a role at BBC News. And Guido Fawkes, the Daily Mail, right-wing newspapers had an absolute fit about it because Huffington Post, while she was editor, had published critical material of Boris Johnson. People went nuts for it. They said this totally impugns the BBC's impartiality. No one ever said that about Nick Robinson, who was, of course, the president of his university conservative association. No one ever said that when Robbie Gibb joined the BBC after having worked under Theresa May. Nobody said that about Tim Davey, who I believe stood as a conservative candidate. So if you want to look at much more explicit examples of political partiality in the BBC, they're there. They're obvious. And yet the story that you get in right-wing newspapers is trying to drum out anyone who could be described as, you know, to the left of George Osborne, because that's how they entrench their political project. And that's why the BBC is so fiercely contested. So anybody who hides behind impartiality is either a total idiot and has a level of critique that you would find embarrassing for a five-year-old, or they're cynically weaponizing impartiality to be able to build right-wing power within the institution. The best one for me was, um, you didn't mention him, was Andrew Neil. You know, the guy who was the chairman of The Spectator, his first job ever on leaving university was the conservative research department. His second job was at The Economist magazine. He then goes and joins the Sunday Times in the early 80s. He's the editor there, where he describes himself as more to the right than Margaret Thatcher. You know, then he works for Sky News. He works on Fox News for, for Murdoch in the early 90s, helps set it up in the US. And then you're led to believe, you know, that Andrew Neil, how dare you say that I'm, I'm not entirely impartial and professional in my news coverage with his multi-million dollar apartment in Trump Tower. It's, it's flabbergastingly stupid. Ash, any other names that we need to uh, call out for our audience? We've, we've said the usual suspects. I said Andrew Neil. Is there anyone else? Have I missed anyone out? Look, you've got f***ing Allegra Stratton working at Bloomberg, who, of course, used to be at Newsnight, berated a woman who was a benefits recipient and unfairly portrayed her as unemployed when she was, in fact, in work. She then is working for the Conservative Party, Alok Sharma and Rishi Sunak. She then gets sacked because of, you know, the Partygate scandal. She's filmed laughing about it. And now where is she? She's at Bloomberg. You know who else is at Bloomberg? Alex Wickham, where it's alleged by Dominic Cummings that he is the godfather to Boris Johnson's son. His political journey is, in fact, even more interesting. He started out at Breitbart before he then became a lobby pass holder. Now, Breitbart, it's not 
you know, just simply right-wing partisan. It has a section on its news website which simply read black crime, right? It is an out-and-out racist publication. Now, I would really struggle to think of, you know, somebody making that journey from the far left, even, you know, the legitimate political media of the left or indeed even, you know, way out into, you know, crazy blog land. That would never happen. That would never happen that one of us would then be able to get a job at Bloomberg or, you know, get a job writing the Politico morning email. It's insane. The conveyor belts that exist for the right do not exist for the rest of us. And I don't want them to exist for the rest of us. I want to destroy the conveyor belt. Beautifully put, Ash. We'll finish there. Thanks for joining me. And thanks for joining us here on Navarra Media. That's it for tonight. Michael Walker will be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.